Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. We continue to introduce you to members of our community that have experiences both from a personal and business perspective that give us a greater insight into areas that we share. This episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, who have been members of our community for over 75 years and continue to provide the professional service and expertise that has set the standard for excellence in the Coachella Valley. Bighorn Properties, with more than three decades of knowledge and experience with their professional sales staff of Lorna, Jackie, Tony, and Trevor, uniquely positioned to represent your real estate needs. Back Nine Greens, another locally owned company with strong ties to our community, with a product line that is known worldwide. They really make works of art. And Corliss Wine, where time and reverence for old world techniques using new world fruit set their wines apart, try their fine wine in the poorhouse and the steakhouse. These are the people whose involvement allow us to produce the stories that you continue to enjoy. We hope as they support us, you support them. Please let them know how much you appreciate what they do for our community. My name is Marty Lockman, and today we will be talking to Brent Hawking, who with his wife, Taya, and their daughters have been members since 2021. We have had many new members over the last three years, and their stories have had the same twists and turns that many of our longer-term members have shared. And we look forward to introduce many of our new members throughout our coming season. Brent's life starts in Long Beach, California. Welcome, Brent, and start us on your journey. Thank you, Marty. Technically, I was born in Indiana when my parents graduated college. The hospital was being condemned at the time. They were so concerned. My parents, grandparents, everybody's from Long Beach. So they drove directly to the hospital in Long Beach to make sure I was okay and to make sure everything was good with my mother. That's how it all started. My dad had purchased a home in Compton, California. My grandparents were in Long Beach. We promptly moved there, and I was raised in Compton, California, till I was about 14 years old. Then we moved to North Long Beach, about 15, and those were my formidable years. Time in Compton, what was it like then? Because we all hear stories about it's a rough place to to be around. What was it like when you were raised there? I wouldn't have known any different. From what I understand, I was obviously very little at the time, but Compton was an up-and-coming place in the late 60s, early 70s, and I think it began to deteriorate or change, I should say, in the 80s. I knew something was up. I graduated high school in 1982, went off to Long Beach State, but my younger sister and brother, my parents immediately didn't let them go to school in Compton anymore. It was done, and I knew something was different. In your early years, your mom and dad, what were they up to? What were their professions or jobs? Uh, What was the upbringing like in your early years? My dad was a preacher 
he had a church on 36th and Linden in Long Beach that got very large, about 10,000 people. Back then, that was a lot of people. It was on the radio worldwide and kind of a public figure then when in our little world of Long Beach. He's also a big man. He's about twice my size, about 6'6", 350. The man in the black suit, the iron hand of the Bible, and that was the way I grew up. Did you realize what a celebrity he was? How did that mold you as a young child? Well, he was definitely, I think the church only held like 3,500, but we had three services to accommodate everybody. And he was being hailed at the time as the next Billy Graham, but I remember just going to radio interviews. There was a television show called the 700 Club, and he was a frequent guest on that. He would do these things with Billy Graham, and it was a bit of a scene in that world um, growing up. And Mom was there to take care of the kids? Mom took care of the kids, supported the family, great mom. Usually that's the case, a common thread when, when you're fortunate enough to have both parents there that the mom is the glue that holds everything together while dad's out doing his deal and you guys have to be shepherded through your life. Absolutely. So now you start school involved in sports? Yes. In the upbringing, we weren't allowed to watch television or do much of that. Back then, you know, the balls get rolled out in the morning and you come in when the street lights come on. The church had a gymnasium and sometimes my dad would take me to work and put me in the gym and come get me at the end of the day. I shot baskets almost all day long, every day. Right near there was a racquetball club. And racquetball was a game back then that was a little bit more popular. And by the time I was 12 years old, I was playing professionally on the circuit with another kid who was 12, my best friend at the time. And we were these, we played doubles professionally and we, we were these little phenoms that... Uh, no adults really wanted to play because it was not fun. I remember at that time that they talk about pickleball now. Well, this is a much faster game. You really have to be in great shape, and it's about positioning. I would imagine at that age to be playing people older than you, that was quite an experience itself. It was a great experience, and racquetball died, but what people may or may not understand about that game is I credit a lot of the hand-eye coordination I have today from that. So many angles back and forth and the ball going 100 miles an hour, it really developed your hand-eye, which came in handy in multiple things. So now in school is basketball. Now you've been shooting all these shots. Is basketball become part of your... Basketball was my life. And in the neighborhood I grew up, basketball was everything. I probably, when I graduated high school, had more football scholarships than probably by double over basketball. But I loved basketball. That's all I wanted to do. I went and played basketball in college at Long Beach State. After my sophomore year, my dad sent me to a Christian school called Biola University, where I played there also. What sort of a transition Going from Long Beach State to a Christian school, how was that at that age in your life? I wanted to be at Long Beach with my friends. All my friends went to Long Beach. The problem was my dad was the speaker on the Biola Hour, which was a radio show that was worldwide. And it wasn't a cheap school, but apparently I got a hall pass because of my dad. So he's like, you're going to a better school, and that's that. And I didn't have any say in the matter. It was a different deal. There was... um. 
It was a bit like Footloose. I mean, there was no dancing. A funny story is I grew up dancing when I'd go over to my friend's houses. That was one of my favorite pastime after dinner. The dad would put music on and you'd follow him. And it was like lying down. It's just just a very common thing. But we used to try to go sneak on to Soul Train. Well, actually just get on, not sneak on. But I never got on and I couldn't figure out why. I went like four times and we didn't. But I eventually got on American Bandstand on a few shows. I transferred to Biola. There's no dancing. So the kids in the dorm room, they watch these shows. Of course, they are allowed to watch TV and they see that and they go, hey, doesn't that guy go here? (laughs) I get kicked out by the dean. I get kicked out of the college for dancing. True story. And my dad just went in and said, no deal. He goes back in or I don't do it. It was like one summer. They said, you can't come back. You broke one of our policies. And then my dad came home one day and said, no issue. You're going back to school. You mentioned Footloose. Because you weren't allowed to, and because you had this great desire to, wasn't it always just a conflict or seeing your friends and sneaking out, as we saw in the movie, and doing stuff like that? Yeah, it's just you didn't even really process it. You just wanted to be with your friends, but it was an iron hand I grew up with, so it was, I was very terrified to make the move to go to a party, to do this, to do anything. But that affects your socialization. Yes. What was dating like? What was the social life? I would imagine was in conflict because here's what your dad wants for you. And this is what you want because all of your friends are going out and doing this stuff. How does that work? It's a little tough. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the first dates were always required to be at church. That was kind of a wrap on that deal it had to be that kind of a function that was more chaperoning than you might have seen in today's world you go through college you're involved in sports what kind of jobs did you do early on in your life i love basketball but i was smart enough to realize i wasn't going to the nba and it was time to move on when i graduated college i went into the finance business i went into commercial real estate financing right out of college, big commercial building, leasing tenants, and that was that. Eventually ended up in Countrywide in the secondary market where we serviced. They take all these loans every month from across the country and we packaged them up, my division of Countrywide. We packaged all those loans up into one pile and sold them into the secondary market, which services those loans. So I was in the finance business probably till about 2004. Somewhat of a volatile time in that business? It was a good time. It was well-paying. I'd never seen money before at all. So that was a new thing. You're inventive and you have vision. How was it working in that sort of financial area? Did that allow you to use all the things that you wanted to do? No, I just happened to be very good with numbers and and that was beneficial and working harder than everyone else, which I had been instilled, was allowing me to thrive in that business. But I was more of a creative kid and there was no opportunity there for in the banking business for that type of involvement. I began designing, I'd buy homes and redesign them and, and sell them. And then I would design my friend's homes for free. And and I just had those eyes. 
I wasn't allowed to drink, obviously, when I was young with my family, but I didn't start drinking till about 27, just literally going for a good time and to get drunk. And I immediately took a crazy passion to it about what is this? Why is this different than this one? And I became really enthralled with it, became very, very good at wine. I had a very strong palate and today, arguably one of the stronger ones out there. I just loved it. The part of where that ties in is in 2004, I met my wife, Tahia. We started dating. And when I asked her to marry me, she, she saw me and, you know, who I am. And she said, look, here's the deal. I'll marry you. But we were in Orange County at the time. It's a different community down there. And I'm an L.A. kid. She said, I'll marry you. But here's the deal. No more banking. You need to do something else. Utilize your creative. You're dying a slow death here. I don't care how much money they're paying you. It just doesn't work for me if we're going to do this. I give her the fingers. We have this much. And if we do something, it goes to this much. She's like, I don't care. That's my deal. She pushed me out the front door to do something creative. So we got married in Laguna Beach and that, and we left, we moved to Malibu. Before we got married, I had to agree to leave the job. Left the job, went, started to proceed on figuring out what was next. I would imagine you thank her every day for pushing you in this direction. She was ahead of the game seeing it. It was the greatest thing I ever did. Well, that kind of support and that kind of partnership is imperative if you're going to reach your full potential. Yep, absolutely. You get married. Now you're looking for the next step. How long did it take you to figure out what that next step was? I started researching, looking at design things, and that didn't work. And then I wanted to implement my design skills with alcohol. And I didn't know which alcohol I wanted to do or what I wanted to do. And I was looking, I had such a big wine background, so I'm looking at my own winery. And that's such a labor of love and not as profitable and a matter of time. I've lived my life with the best of the best, and I didn't want to make anything that wasn't better than everybody else's in the entire marketplace. And now there's some really great wines out there, and I thought that would be a big challenge with the Obriones and the Lafitte's of the world. I was like, whoa, I tried to start with something that I thought was underserved, was a highly elegant spirit. I chose tequila back then felt like I could redefine the category and make something better than anyone had ever seen. The best of the best type of thing. Before we move forward, how does this kid from Compton have these skills and this understanding of what is the best of the best? Because the people that you are around all the time, this isn't where they're going. They don't have that vision. They don't have that palate. They don't have that desire. Where does that come from? The work ethic I get from dad and the family, but where does that come from? It came from not having. It came from on Sunday, they would bring, the cars would pull up to the house and bring groceries to the house. Even though my dad was big, it just, there wasn't a lot of money in that deal. Everything was banned. When I say that, I really had to be either in the Bible or playing sports. That was when he was watching and on it. I would have stacks of GQ magazine hidden. I wasn't allowed to have that. I just was like really watching the fashion, watching this. I had to hide music, which is a 
huge love of mine and where a lot of the creativity came from, but I had to hide the music. I just would see things that people had. And in the neighborhood I grew up, not everybody had, but the people, whatever they had, they drove it. And the Cadillacs that I saw in the 70s, gold with this and and just, I was I was able to see people with not that they were material, but it opened up this creative thing. Like I could draw that. I could, I could build that. There was just a real desire to do something different other than sports. As I understand it, you have to go out and make a living. Mortgage business, everything, that's very profitable. But then your wife comes in and says, you're more than this. You have abilities that other people don't have. And if you don't nurture that, if you don't at least take a chance on that, you'll resent it the rest of your life. Yes. You start doing this and you get into the tequila business and you're out to make the best tequila that there is. Tell me how that happened. It's actually a, a pretty great story. Tequila is a regulated spirit. There's only a couple of them in the world, which is champagne, which I have a very high in champagne, but you can only make champagne in champagne France. You can't make it anywhere else. So that's why in America they call it sparkling wine and in Italy they call it Prosecco. Tequila is that way. You can't use tequila, the name, anywhere else in the world in this small area. And there's only about 143 distilleries. I went down and just, I probably went to 90% of them. And they have a regulatory council where you can kind of see what they're made of and this and that and the ethanol and superior alcohol levels. There was one that sat at the top. It was called the Mexican Private Reserve. The guys there that work there, they're like, Oh, yeah, we have some. You can try it. I was like, wow, this is really good. And they're like, yeah, don't even think about it. They're way over in Guanajuato. They have all this money. They don't really let anybody in. There's just no way you can get into that one. I was like, oh, bummer. So I was working on another deal because I wanted my own distillery. I wanted to make it myself. I didn't want to have somebody make me their own special formula. So I was working on a deal with Enrique Partida, who's one of the biggest landowners. There's actually a Partida tequila out there, but he's one of the biggest landowners. I was getting very close to the deal. And I ran into the DJ at our wedding. Kid went by the name of DJ Casanova. Mexican kid, and we're talking. He's like, how's the mortgage been? What have you been doing? Said, oh, I'm getting into tequila. He goes, I didn't know you were into tequila. And I said, yeah, I've been going down there. He goes, yeah, well, you know, my uncle owns a distillery down there. I go, really? I go, which one? I go, I've been to like almost all of them. He goes, it's called the Mexican private reserve. And I go, you got to be kidding me. And, and he, I go, that stuff is outrageous. I go, but I heard your uncle, he won't let anybody in. Or he goes, yeah, he goes, he died nine days ago, old age, nineties. He, he goes, nothing big. He goes, but his younger brother runs it now. And I go, oh, I go, would he be open to it? He goes, I don't know, man. They're pretty tough. Parted ways. If anything comes up, let me know. Six weeks later, maybe five, six weeks later somewhere, he calls me. He goes, hey, I'm going down there. And they said they'd talk to you if you want to go down. And I said, I'll go with you. And I went down and I forged a relationship with them to where I became partners. And, you know, then eventually uh, controlling owner of the distillery. We've been great family friends since probably 2005 or six for the last almost 20 years. And it's it was a very just... It was the right place to be. What did you find that made them so special when you went down there? Well, number one, they had their own distillery. With, they weren't making for anyone else, and they weren't running 
some large factory and using chemicals. And we hit it off that I wanted to do the best of the best. They were wealthy in where they lived and they lived in Leon, Mexico. The distillery was in a place called Puracima del Rincon, which means the purest of the corner. And it's about 45 minutes away. That is actually how I named the first tequila after the family. So I named it De Leon, the family of Leon. And that is where that name came from. But they were also about the best of the best. They're like, our tequila is special. Their tequila was special. And I said, I want to turn it up four notches or more. And I want to make the best of the best. And I'm going to name it after you. And they were all about that. And they said, you can do whatever you want here. I built trust up over the first year. You know, naming it after them on the bottle. I have this very elaborate cork that has Mayan masks and snakes. Well, you know, the snake is on the Mexican flag. And they're both symbols of guarding the sacred territories. It was like guarding the sacred juice, and then their family name is on it. So I established my trust with them and that I was here to make it great for all of us. And we launched in May, Cinco de Mayo of 2009 at the Chateau Marmont. I took over the Chateau Marmont, and uh, it was a uh, it was a really good it was a really good time. Now, you're showing to them you want to protect their legacy, the family legacy. Mm -hmm. How could they resist that? Two things. What makes a great tequila the best? And what changes did you make when you came in to something that was already well-respected and even make it better? The number one thing is the water, the yeast, and the lack of chemicals. That's three things. I will tell you that water has always been an issue in Mexico. Rosendo Sr. that ran it, the younger brother, if you ask him what the difference is between theirs and everyone else, he said, the water, the water, the water. They have three spring wells, 400 meters deep. They actually have the purest water in all of Mexico, tested, verified. We used to put it in our marketing because we could back it up. But that water was special. The second thing you need is a very high quality yeast. Most people will use a yeast that is, even the family itself, they'll use a big bag of yeast that there's multiple kinds of yeast you can use. So I said, no, we're going to go over the top. And I ended up using a champagne yeast, which is literally substantially more. And it created a texture on the, almost a softening finish on the original De Leon. Then the third thing I did, which no one had ever done, is I took my wine background and I implemented it in tequila. It is very common and common today. They all use caramel flavoring when they're aging their reposados and anejo. They put them in barrels, but they just put them in standard barrels and they let them age. Then they add their flavorings and each person releases their own style of uh, reposado or anejo tequila. I didn't want to use any chemicals ever when I made my product. Because of my wine background, my negotiant in France, I acquired Chateau d'Achem barrels from France, which is one of the largest Sauterne wines in the world. I was aging the tequila in probably 17 different kinds of wine to figure out what worked the best. I had Chateau Latour, which is one of the first growths, and it came out this beautiful red color, but it was horrible. The fruit did not go with the tequila, but it's probably the prettiest thing you've ever seen. It narrowed down to sweet wine that was coming off there, and it gave it such a natural 
softness in the Chateau d'Achem barrels that all we needed to do was we pulled some out early for Reposado, some out later for Anejo, and then let it age more for extra Anejo. I'm pretty sure everybody tries to do it now, but there is a real gift of the palate and understanding. People now will say, oh, we age ours in wine barrels. Well, unless you have someone like me pulling it out every two weeks, what happens is the flavor drops on a barrel within about 72 hours. You don't know when that's going to be. It could sit there for a while. When it hits, then there's about two months where it's thickening. It's, it, the flavors are coming alive. Now, if you're not checking it every two weeks, would be the minimum. I was more like every week, just pull a sample out of the barrel. What happens after those two months is it starts to get too woody. The wood takes over the flavor profile. A lot of brands I could tell you about that just let them sit and they just taste oaky and you could just feel the wood. I just wanted a very smooth textured product. I monitored it closely, predicted, well not predicted, but decided when they came out for each variant. And that's how we built that brand. This is more art than it is science. It was... For the most part. Yeah, and just a quest for the best. It would seem to me that, and there's brands out there, I'm sure, that is more factory developed or processed. If you're not giving the personal attention to something like this, you cannot maintain the level of excellence, I wouldn't think. Absolutely. There's some really great stories in De Leon. Like there was a brand that came after me. Do you remember the show Entourage? And Doug Ellen, he asked me if I wanted to be on that show. And that actually helped this brand Avion propel into selling their brand and doing well. It's still in the market today. But he came to me first. He'll tell you the same story. He actually did in an interview. And he said, no, I offered it to Brent first. And I told him I couldn't tell him much about it. I said, well, you at least have to tell me the premise. And he said, it's going to be Turtle's new tequila. Turtle was a character on the show. And I said, hell no, I won't do it because I wanted the best. I wanted this exclusive thing. And the rest is history for the other brand. They, they took it and it did very well because of it. Well, you bring up the next, I would think the next step. And that is you develop the best of the best. That's your goal. You still have to market it because in order to get it out to make some money, but more importantly, to get your message out about what it is, the product that you're selling, how do you handle the market, the marketing? I did something different back then that most people couldn't have done, but I was very deep in the music business and developed relationships with some very major rock and roll people. And rock and roll had not died yet at that time. In 2009, in New York, uh, there were two things. Fashion Week in New York was the biggest deal going. I would get hit up as Daily Own to sponsor the Prada show, the this show, the that show. And they're all there. And I'm like, this is a saturation of nonsense. I go, I need all these people. I ended up doing, and all these parties are about 6 to 10 p.m. I end up doing a late night party at the Rose Bar, which was literally the hottest place in New York at the Gramercy, at midnight. And I did a concert, a private show, almost every night during Fashion Week for the first three years. And the opening band I brought in was Guns N' Roses, who hadn't performed in seven years since they split up. I'm talking to Doc McGee, who is the manager of Kiss and Guns N' Roses. I'm literally trying to bring Kiss in because 
from a friend, they told me they wanted to do a private show. I'm like, that'd be cool as well. And then he asked me about Guns N' Roses. I'm like, well, are they even playing? He goes, well, I don't know. I asked him. Let me ask. I get a call back from Doc. He goes, I have a question for you. He goes, is your dad a preacher? And I go, yeah, why? He goes, well, apparently Axel's dad used to work for your dad. (laughs) He was a preacher when his name was Bill Bailey. Axel said he would do it. Next thing you know, I mean, you can YouTube it today, Guns N' Roses in the Rose Bar. And it was like you cannot believe. But I put the biggest bands in the world there almost every night. And I would get them. And it became what they want. They wanted to play for me. So I had Iggy Pop, The Kills, The Dead Weather. I had The Black Keys before anybody knew who they were. We were putting on these incredible shows. Meanwhile, in L.A., I needed to do something with the marketing to expand it. There was a gal who worked for Weinstein when he was running all the movies. And I was paying attention, you know, these celebrities, they would be on these step and repeats. Every movie premiere was a big deal. And these step and repeats didn't really have that many sponsors back then. And, you know, they had some. But these celebrities would then get in trouble or do something and then they would use those same stock photos for the news story. So those step and repeats for all those movies Weinstein had back then in his prime were there. I made a deal with Harvey at the time to do all the step and repeats and the Golden Globes exclusively for De Leon. You could not, I still have the video, I could show it to you. You could not, go to see a movie premiere and not see my daily own logos anywhere during that time. And that I feel really expanded the brand. Tell some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the industry, step and repeats. When um, the celebrities come into a movie premiere, they have to take pictures. And so they, they require the stars to walk in front of a, it's kind of a big, sometimes eight by eight, 16 by eight, sheet that has the name of the movie premiere or anything Harvey wants on it. And maybe they've got, you know, Pepsi or some big sponsor that's giving them all the money for the premiere. They get to be on it. And it's a promotional item that they can charge people a lot of money for. I worked out a pretty good deal. Number of images that something like that gets is you couldn't pay for that kind of advertising. You couldn't pay for it. Now the tequila has taken off. People are recognizing the excellence of the product. Mm -hmm. What's next? We were about four years in. I got a call from Diageo, which is the biggest spirits company in the world, and they wanted to buy it. Diageo's in the UK, and I wasn't in the UK. And they flew out. Um, they They have people in the United States, but the people that came out said that, you know, they have their big, they're publicly traded, so they have their big board meetings in, in the UK. And they said that they knew they wanted daily own, and I was not in the UK, so they'd never tried it. And they said they were in the board meeting. They could literally buy Patron or the biggest brands in the world. And they said, so what are we doing on the tequila front? It's starting to get hot. They're like, well, you know, we're looking at this. We're looking at that. But we don't like the numbers. We don't like this. There's a 
smaller brand you probably haven't heard about. He goes, but we think it has potential. It's called De Leon. Apparently, there was like 60 people in the room, and they all went, oh, my God, they throw the best parties. That brand is the coolest brand, and no one had ever tried it. And they said that was the moment they knew they had to have it. So that brand and marketing, even without trying the product, which they're not much for the flavor of the product anyway, but that's what they wanted. When the world wants it, that's when they'll pay for it. Yeah, there's nothing better than being cool. I mean, when you're cool, no matter what the product is, you've got to have it. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. They want to buy you. Mm -hmm. And? First couple rounds, we said no. And then we finally said yes. And the number got good. And I did predict to my board, I said, look, this is a great number. I said, but I'm telling you, tequila is about to blow the roof off. I had already helped my friends who started Casamigos just kind of get going. And they were just coming into the marketplace. And you could just feel the fever around tequila if everybody voted against me and once the number got big enough, they're like, Brent, you're selling it. And that was that. So we sold it. When we sold it about a week later, I sold it on uh, December 23rd of 2013. Just after Christmas on like the 27th, I get a call from Sean Combs, AKA Diddy, who I don't know at this time. And he says, hey, man, uh, I'm going to be on De Leon. I've been assigned to De Leon to push it. We're, I'm having a New Year's Eve party. You need to host it with me. Uh, you know, they gave me this contract where I still had to run the brand for three years. And I'm like, what? And I didn't know. You can't sell the car and ask them why they painted it blue, right? Apparently, they had passed it on to Puff and felt like they were going to make that move and change it up and do this. So the next thing I know... My wife and I are on our way to Miami. New Year's Eve, I'm literally hosting Puff's New Year's Eve party on Star Island. That was fun. And then at that party, Drake, who is currently you know the biggest pop star in the world, he was the DJ at Puff's party that night. Him and his partner came up to me, and they're like, are you the De Leon guy? You know, that stuff is amazing. I'm like, yeah, great. And he's like, want to do something? And I didn't think anything of it. About a month later, they came to my office, my showroom in West Hollywood, and they wanted to do something. They wanted to do a champagne. I said, look, that takes a long time. And Drake's handle is in Instagram is, if you don't know, he calls himself the champagne poppy. And But then we decided to launch something first. He said, what do you want to do out of the box? I said, I think we do whiskey. And his first words were, that's a white man's drink. And I said, exactly. I said, I think there's a real opportunity. I named the brand Virginia Black after my upbringing at the Virginia Country Club when we used to try to sneak on and we weren't allowed to go there. And I, Drake loved the name and I created that brand and it does very well in Canada and, and overseas. When you sold the tequila company, many times somebody takes something over that's been very successful but they don't realize what it takes to maintain that success. You were there to make sure that the quality of the product was always right. You were there to make sure that the marketing was in the right place. Many times people come in and they go, I can, he did it, I can do it even better. What happens to De Leon after you sell it? My counsel warned me and they said, look, be prepared. These are the big boys. They're going to change the liquid. They're going to make it cheaper. I had this elaborate cap that was like almost a pound. Like it, They're like, just be prepared. No big deal. And they're like, and so they gave me a three-year 
contract to run it. And they, they actually predicted, they said, what happens, Brent, is they're going to take everything you tell them for the next six to eight months, pay you the whole three years, but somewhere between 10 and 16 months, they're going to tell you, we got it now, you can go your own way. It almost happened to the letter of that conversation. It's not the same deal today. They changed everything. They changed the juice. The top is plastic. It doesn't even look the same, and it is not. I wouldn't drink it. It's a different animal, but that's part of the game and how the big boys work. Again, because it'd be of great interest before we get on to the whiskey business. You mentioned Randy Gerber and and George Clooney and Mike Melman in the tequila business, and you were counseling them, as I understand it, when they got into it. That worked out very well for them. Yep. What advice did you give them when they started? Well, they knew what they wanted to do. They were definitely coming in, and they were going to do tequila, but they didn't know where to go in Mexico, (laughs) how to get a distillery. We want to make it taste like this. How do we do that? The fundamentals of making tequila is where I helped them. They used to come. Randy lives in Malibu with me, and Mike's been a friend for 20 years. You know, they just needed the fundamentals. They, They knew what they were doing. I mean, you know, I saw the initial bottles were a little bit different of the Casamigos and they did all that on their own. They had their plan, worked very well. Okay. So that's interesting because sometimes you think celebrities just come into it to attach their names to it and aren't really actively involved. But in that particular case, they were from the start. Oh yeah. Mike had a a right-hand guy named Sky Joyner who was literally like Brent fly me down to these distilleries, show me what we need. We're trying to go here. So can you help? And I'm like, Sure. You do the with Drake. You are still in the whiskey business with him. Mm-hmm. Why in Canada and in the rest of the world and not here? It moves here, but I don't know if Drake's... I don't know why it, it moves here and it has very good ratings, but it doesn't get pushed here. And that has a lot to do with the, the big muscle players because I went for the throat. We... I didn't, I could have gone for a, this was the one moment, Virginia Black, where I wasn't allowed to make the best of the best. Meaning Drake came in and I said, we'll do this brand. And I was literally going to try to do like a Pappy Van Winkle, which is, um, you know, some of the best whiskey in the world. I wanted to try to outdo everyone. Well, we needed a distribution partner because Drake was such, had such a big microphone. We needed it to go out fast once he started pushing it. We ended up with, uh, our partner was Jose Cuervo, uh, which owns a, one of the biggest distribution outlets called Proximo. And they said, if we're going to do this, we need you to come down to $40 a bottle and make it competitive against Crown Royal. And I said, whoa, that's going to make it difficult to be this. They're like, this is you know, they gave me all these studies. This is Drake's market. This is this. This is what works. And this play for me, I was still able to do. I wrote this television commercial we did with Drake. That's very funny. And I had an ability to, I created the bottle. I created the liquid, but it's not good when you tell me to tone it down. I think it led to the detriment of it. And because of where whiskey was in its prime back then, that's a serious drinking group and they downgraded it because it was drake's name on it you know they said oh what kind of celebrity bs is this Uh, the product is very good Um, it's rated higher than most whiskeys it's very easy drinking 
and I just think in the U.S. it's a little, you know, they want more of a stringent whiskey, Kentucky, old school style, and they didn't give them enough credibility on it. This takes us up to today. Mm -hmm. With all that you've accomplished, what does the future look like for you? The alcohol business that I've been in, it became, you know, the distribution through COVID, the distributors had to cling more tightly to the big partners that paid them the most. This would be the Diageos, the Bacardis, the LVMHs. The alcohol business is tough. You hear about Meldman, you hear about me, but we are black swans. It, it doesn't happen as much as you think, even though you and I know these guys personally, it's just very few of them. The other one you know is Ryan Reynolds, you know, okay, but that... There's thousands that go under. I have the name, I've won all the awards, all that, but to go back in, create a new brand, do something different. What drives me today is to disrupt the system completely. I'm arguably one of the more buck the system humans out there. What I saw was in the alcohol business that started with Capone back in the day, but there's a vig that takes place. So I'll give you an example of my champagne that's out now. It's one of the highest end champagnes in the world. The, the starting point is $300 a bottle. I could sell you that bottle, Marty, for $150. Problem is, back before COVID, I have to give it to Southern Wine and Spirits, the big distributor. They would then put $75 on it and sell it to the local liquor store here for $225 or to Bighorn for that matter. And then Bighorn needs to put a profit on it. So you will pay $300. Almost all of them, there's you just double the price. And that's the VIG that is involved in alcohol. The laws changed. And in alcohol under 24%, which is wine, beer, sake, and you know champagne, um, you could ship direct to consumers in almost 50 states. I end up at a lunch with Tony Robbins. He doesn't drink. He's doing all this positivity thing. There's all these people in the room. It's driving me nuts. They all leave and we start to chat and he's really down to earth. Just being a good guy. And I go, dude, I didn't even know you didn't drink. I, you know, whatever. He goes, what do you do? Blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, we get in this conversation. And I said, I'll call you back if I think of anything. And I built a new brand called Drink to Give. Because I operate so exclusively, it gave me a chance to be even more exclusive because there's nothing better than when people can't have it. And I intend to do that for the rest of my time. I created this brand where the price point doesn't change. That champagne bottle is still 300 but you will now only be able to get it on Drink to Give. And that other $150 will go to kids that need it or people that really need it. And Tony loved it. We partnered. I sent you the, the website. We did a video and getting ready to launch that. But the concept will be the best of the best. I'm not going to have a liquor store in there, but I'm going to have, when you go in there, you will get champagne that you can get nowhere else in the world. You will get a burgundy that you can't, it's not in the U.S. that you can't get, you know, red wine, white wine, likely Bordeaux or burgundy. And then, you know, I'll have my new tequila, my seven-year non-compete is up. I have a new tequila that won't be available anywhere. I may add a rum or a gin, just one of a few things, but when you go there, you know, you get the best of the best. That chunk of money goes to helping people that really need it. And that'll be available online only? Online only. 
And when do you think that the launch will be taking place? We're deciding now. I mean, COVID threw a little bit of a wrench in everybody, as we all know. We're putting together the finals. I would probably say first quarter. We were going to get it out before Christmas, but we'll probably bring it to market first quarter. Well, obviously, this is good news for our community because the two things that our community does very well is drink and also give back. Please keep us all informed about when that is going to take place because we certainly want to publicize that. An amazing idea. I can't imagine it's not going to be wildly successful, and it only helps everybody. Another question You're very family-oriented, you know, your wife, and you have these two great daughters. I want you to talk a little bit about what that family dynamic has meant to you. And then you've shared some stories about your daughters and what they're involved in. Share that a little bit with people. I have a house full of girls. That's a perfect setup for me, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. I have my oldest, Brooklyn, is 15 and a half. My youngest, Harlow, is just about 14. They're about eight months apart. They're entirely different and great. My wife, Tahia, is arguably one of the most creative people I've ever met and just extraordinarily talented. And raising the kids probably comes up with a new company idea like three times a week. It's bananas, how her brain works. And I'm very fortunate And it's a good family dynamic. We love spending time together. My oldest was fell in love with horses. My wife was a competitive horse rider in the state of Washington. In fact, she still holds the barrel racing records in the state of Washington. She was a barrel racer. My oldest daughter, both of them picked it up. They both love horses. And my oldest, she started with Hunter Jumper, which is just jumping, but she just really wanted the cowboy way. And so she does reining and cutting and a lot of the real cowboy stuff. My youngest, Harlow, she loves it as well. She also loves to surf every day. And she's a very creative artist that has got some major paintings in our house with her name on them. So she's, she's, She's a very creative kid like her mama. Share, if you will, your oldest daughter, the horse whisperer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tell me a a little bit about the person that everybody knows that she's become. She's definitely got a gift that we didn't, you know, really understand until we understood. But there, um, she was, uh, the place where she rides is with Bill Shatner, who she doesn't really know anything about Star Trek or who he is. And we, of course, wouldn't tell her. Bill's in his 90s and still rides competitively all the time. And he's got all these Arabian horses and he just has a lot of things. And they kind of became friends. And even with when it came down to our dog, we had this little dog that lived like 17 years and passed recently. But the girls knew he was going. They said, Daddy, we want to get our own dogs. And And Bill breeds Dobermans. And I said, get whatever you want. I'm expecting a little dog. And the girls come back and say that Bill got us Dobermans. (laughs) So I ended up with two Dobermans who are great. And then, but this, the horse story was wild. There was a horse that Brooklyn, uh, that Bill was having trouble with and his trainers, you know, riding him. And Bill doesn't let anybody ride his horses. It just doesn't do it. But he trusts Brooklyn, I guess. So my wife's there with Brooklyn and he says could you try could you get on Jasmine and see what the problem is here Brooklyn walked into the arena and no one just 
took over the horse full control. We videoed it. It was, it was hard to believe. And they're just, the horse was just leaning into it. Like this connection was instant. I left and then Brooklyn started telling us that she loved that horse and blah, blah, blah. But Bill was never going to sell it. Next thing you know, Bill was like, I want Brooklyn to have the horse. And that was that. But it was a special kind of thing. And if you saw the video, I don't know how you that connection happened so fast. But she things the horse didn't do, she got it to do immediately. There's just innate gifts that some of us are given. And she obviously has that gift in this particular area. She does it. She definitely has it. I want to touch on something else, too, because your family is all into physical fitness. And you and your wife set the tone for that, but I've seen the the kids in the gym also. How did that come about? Probably been a part of your life for a long time. Also, your wife is also the one that drives the truck and trailer to all these events for your kids. And I hear that you don't want, you want no part of that. And she handles it like it's nothing. I would probably crash it. And that's without exaggeration. It's a kind of a comedy, this truck. Anybody that's in Bighorn has seen it. It's a, it's a big Ram 35 Dually, which I didn't even know what that word meant. But there's two tires. It's just really wide. And Tahia, about the size of a jockey, she literally gets behind that thing and then puts the 70-foot trailer behind that and drives it like it's a regular car and it's it's i could i couldn't even i couldn't even think about doing that physical fitness part of your lives always been a part of my life just trying to hold it together and stay in shape i I started lifting when i was 21 i was a big kid i was probably 220 when i was 16. i started working out and just wanted to stay in shape you know whether it was you know to meet girls or anything else it was just you know, athletics, it was just normal, let's be in shape. And I enjoyed working out and playing sports. And then I met her and she was the same way. And so that was just something we had in common. So we've always worked out together and enjoyed it. And then in our family, we try to lead by example. We tell the girls there's only one way to to accomplish any of this. And it's hard work and practice. One of the examples that's ringing to them today is golf. They knew their daddy didn't golf. I, I wasn't from that upbringing. And I started playing when I joined Bighorn, probably late February of uh, this year. As you know, everybody knows here, it takes a tremendous amount of work. I'm not doing anything unless I can just try to be the best at it. But the girls see me get up and go to the range and where are you going? I'm going to practice. I'm going to practice. I can't be good at golf unless I practice. But we try to instill that on new things. Like all of a sudden daddy's practicing golf every day. Like, what is this? And I, we just try to tell him, if you want to be good at anything, you got to put that work in. We just try to lead by example. And that's where the physical fitness comes in. And we go to the gym. And when they got old enough, we said, you want to go with us or do you want to sit there? You know, and then now they've just jumped in and, and they're getting more excited about it. That's great. And I'll tell you, people that are listening, nobody hits more golf balls than Brent. And he is getting good at the game. And but it's a frustrating game. It's a difficult game. It's probably different than anything you've ever done before. But you seem to really have embraced it and, and love it. It's very centering. I'm a long way from being anywhere good, but I'm taking the lessons. I love what the game brings. I was actually kind of surprised just at the centering 
of golf, of your daily life, just being out there and doing it. It's a, it's a real joy for me now just to hit balls and practice and just be out there in the open air. I really, I really took a real liking to it, which I wasn't sure I would. Who's had the greatest influence on your life? What people? I think there's been several, but just sometimes they were sports figures. Sometimes they were my mother. And I think it was collecting from different people and, and learning along the way and trying to implement many things from many people. And certainly started with a great work ethic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Everything else builds on that. I Everything think. builds on that. Yeah. When you're working with people, what qualities do you look for in people you work with? In the era that we're in now, I look for people that are, they want to put the work in, but they want to do the thing, but they, they think for themselves. They come in and no matter what the assignment is, they figured out something new, whatever it is we're doing. And it's those people that bring me something. If I tell you to go do this at this movie premiere or whatever, and you got to do the setup, the ones that are special come back and, and they say something different. They're like, you know, if we raise this thing by three feet, we'd get more coverage on this. Or just as simple as that, the ones that don't do their job, but they are looking at it of how to improve it. As the boss or CEO, they come to you and you're just having a chit chat with them. But the ones that are trying to be better, that are really looking at the job the right way, they're like, you know, if we did this, it might work better. Even if it's a, not a great idea, it, it, I know that they're thinking about how to make this thing better. And that's, that's a quality I'll take any day of the week. What is your management philosophy? And this goes in both the creation of companies, but also in surrounding yourself with the right people. I've had the um, same staff since 06, and they don't leave. What I try to do is take away the excuses as a management philosophy, and I don't want to tell them what to do. I want them to figure it out. I did the basic guidelines, but when they come into my office, I say, I need to know everything you need to not whine. Uh, bonuses will be there. I don't want to hear anything about it's tight. It's this, it's that. What do you need to make you extraordinarily pleased that you're already here? And then after that, I need you to make sure that you do a great job for me. But I, my philosophy is eliminate the excuses. I want none no excuses for why you can't do a great job. And then I find out who's there. What advice would you give the 20-year-old Brent Hockney? Most of it would be patience, that there is nothing wrong with not answering right away, with thinking through projects, with taking your time. And what I learned is that the answer to a problem or a business or anything the day you hear it that might upset you or make you happy is completely different from the next day or maybe five days from then. And you need to have those variety of assessments on how you feel about this thing to give yourself a chance for the best possible solution. Good advice. Great advice. Brent, thank you so much for coming in today. This is an example for you this that are listening we have these great new members that have entered this community during a time 
where there was some great challenges. Now those challenges are behind us in many ways, and we have a real chance to meet these people that have brought an extraordinary amount of talent and perspective to, to our community. And I really appreciate you coming in here because it's invaluable for all of us to get to know you guys better, to come together as a community in the future. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, it's it's been a real honor for us to be here, and we're really, you parachute in, and you hope you pick the right place to be. And we looked at all the ones we all know, and my family couldn't be more happy with everything about Bighorn and our selection to be here. Brent, thanks for joining us and for joining the Bighorn community. We look forward to your ongoing involvement in all of the opportunities Bighorn presents. And thanks again to Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers, Bighorn Properties, Back Nine Greens, and Corliss Estate Wine for their support. We look forward to presenting another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. And if you have a suggestion of someone who would be a great guest, let us know. Everyone in our community has a story.